The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. God's Word as we've been studying Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 12, reading this morning from the English Standard Version. You may or may not have noticed that our pew Bibles were exchanged in the past few days. That version, the ESV, is now in the pew. If you don't have that and wish to follow the same thing that I'm reading, it would be in the pew Bible, Luke 12. Otherwise, follow in whatever version you have as I read God's holy word. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, first this, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
And this is God's Word. Alive and powerful in every way and true and authoritative in what it speaks. I really think few of us realize how many things we do that are motivated primarily by fear. You might say, well, I don't see myself reacting to fear that much. And if we would sit down and talk, I think we would discover some areas where that is the root motive of behavior in your life. Teenagers are very suspect of this. They daily nurse anxieties that their clothes or their behavior or their mannerisms or something else, their speech is not going to be acceptable to their peers. And that is a kind of low-level controlling fear. Twenty years later, the teenager's grown up, and now he fears different things. The boss, the IRS, the credit card company, the national economy, and perhaps a lot of other things. There are the opinions of friends and, and the spoken or unspoken thoughts of relatives that can control us, and we respond fearing that we would get in more trouble or, or more difficulty with those people if we don't behave certain ways. And then ultimately, almost everyone comes to fear some kind of disease in their body or approaching death. In a world of terrorism and economic recession, we have all kinds of causes to fear things, other people, circumstances, debt, internet predators, worldwide recession, bizarre, destructive weather. We can even fear, as we've learned in recent days. But today I want you to see from God's Word, particularly verses 4 and 5 as the central focus of Luke 12, that a proper awe of the living God overshadows and drives out every lesser kind of fear. Once you discover that, you can begin a reverent, confident sort of living in awe of the Most High God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll live under a very different fear that will have totally different results in your life. Now we begin with Luke 12, and I have to ask you to at least cast your eye back for a moment at the last part of Luke 11, which I did not read. But there's a whole section from 37 to the end about the interaction of Jesus with Pharisees where he was bringing out chiefly the theme of their hypocrisy and speaking very harshly and boldly against them because they were the people that had literally said a little earlier in chapter 11, as he drove out demons, he does this by the power of the prince of demons. In other words, he's like a demon himself. They had spoken things against Christ that they knew were not true. And now as Jesus brings those things against them, he heaps woe. The word woe occurs at least a half dozen or more times in the last section of chapter 11 as Jesus says, woe to you who say these kinds of things. You are posing as being very pious 
in your hypocrisy, and yet you want to kill me. You want to kill the one who was sent to you from God. Jesus shows a great boldness here. He's the Lamb of God who roars like a lion in this passage. And then he goes on with that as a background. He still has this hypocrisy of, of men on his mind from chapter 11 as he goes into chapter 12 and urges us as believers to face the fears we have of other people. Because incredibly, as I'll say in a moment, he's exposing these Pharisees as people who are afraid and who live their lives controlled by the fear of man rather than the adoring fear of God. So first of all today, verses 1 through 3 have Jesus reminding us here that fear of other people breeds in us a futile insecurity. The fear of other people breeds futile insecurity. He says, be on your guard. He turns to the believers and says, don't be like those people I've just been talking to here in the verses preceding. They are like people that have a leavening influence, a sort of yeast in them that spreads through a life, and that yeast, that leaven, is called hypocrisy. Now, we may not know much about what yeast is or how exactly or why it works as it does, but if you've ever made bread and left yeast out, you know the problem that you have. The, the dough does not rise. A little bit of yeast causes that dough, spreading throughout it by some chemical fermentation, causes the bread to rise. Jesus said, this is what this hypocrisy is like that you have seen in the lives of these people I've been talking to, these Pharisees and scribes. What is hypocrisy? Well, it could be a lot of things, I suppose, but it's, it's that tendency of human nature to advertise yourself as something you're not, to pretend to be something different than what you are, to be concerned about the outside appearance and impression that you make always, knowing that if people really saw the inside reality, they would be shocked and they would not accept you. So you have to always adjust the outside, what people see, to make them accept you, be comfortable with you, be impressed by you. The hypocrite, in other words, is always play-acting. He's always wearing a mask. And why is he doing this? Well, Jesus seems to say he's doing this because he's afraid. He's afraid of people really seeing the actuality of what he is inside. And so he has to say, well, I can't let them understand what I really think on that subject, so I've got to construct a facade that will make them think I am this way when I'm actually this way. Or I have to make my sister think that my marriage is happy even if it is not because of what she would say and how she would react. Or I have to, you know, make my wife understand that things are this way, even if they're just the opposite. Every hypocrite, everyone who has this leavening disease that the Pharisees and scribes had, is a person who is embellishing himself, inflating an impression, creating some different mask for people to see because he's afraid that friends, family members, work associates, or even just the general public 
would come down on them or attack them or reject them or think badly of them if they knew what we really are. He called this leaven because a little bit of it affects the entire personality. Well, Jesus pictured these scribes and Pharisees putting so much effort into behaving in pious ways when actually their hearts were evil. But he would show us here that in the end, everything they were doing is actually futile. They weren't accomplishing anything. In the end, they were not going to fool anyone. Because in the end result of everything, what people are is not concealed from God, and there will be a day when it will be revealed to everyone. It's not concealed from God today. We have that evidence in something like Psalm 139 where the Lord says, or the psalmist says, if I say, let the darkness hide me, even darkness is not dark to you, O Lord. You see in the dark. Our God is the God who sees through every pretense. He sees into every dark place. He looks beneath the surface of everything. But then the emphasis here comes in Luke 12.2, that a day is going to be when what God sees now is going to be seen by everybody. He says, nothing is covered up that is not going to be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He's referring to the great day of judgment, the day when every secret of every heart is going to be opened up and sounded out like somebody was blowing a trumpet about it from a rooftop. I would suppose the hypocrite's greatest fear would be the idea, if we, you could just imagine a world where your thoughts and what you were inside that other people don't know very well could somehow you know, go through a projector system, and the minute you walked in a room, behind you on the wall was being projected exactly what's going on in your mind. That's pretty scary, really scary. Most of us, if you think about that very long, would not want that to be happening. And yet Jesus is saying there will be a day when that will happen. And not only what you are thinking or what you are in that moment, but everything that you've ever been will, will, in a manner of speaking, if you can somehow stretch your imagination to see these giant IMAX screens they have today, we're going to stand before God with an IMAX screen behind us. And there's our life, what we really are, not what we constructed, not what we so carefully pretended, what we really were and are projected on that screen in the final day. And the wonder of it is that God knows it all right now. You see, that's the futility of this. It's silly. We're working so hard, fearing other people so much, trying to be the way we think we should be, wear the clothes we should wear, speak the way we should speak, participate in the activities we really don't want to participate in, but they make us look right, all to build this image, which is futile. God sees through it now, and everyone is going to see through it at the end of time. Now, you could avoid that IMAX horror of having yourself revealed that way if now in your life, you would take hold of what Proverbs 28, 13 speaks about, where it says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
What is it about when we come to the cross of Christ and confess Him truly as our Lord if it is not saying, Lord, I'm watching the film that you're watching about me. I'm looking at me in the deepest recesses and I see all the ugly stuff that you see. And I face it and I own it. And I say, Lord, I I won't try to change it. I won't try to pretend I can be different. I won't tell you I'll clean up my act and be better. I can't. But you, by your mercy and by your power and by the death of Jesus in my place, died knowing all that's on that film of mine to make me clean and make me whole. God does know everything that can be known about you. And yet he is willing for the sake of Jesus Christ who offered himself to pay the penalty that you owe to forgive the one who faces that reality today. You see, coming to Christ is really a matter of giving up a life of hypocrisy and fear of other people because it's futile and it will get you nowhere. Each of us, I think, has already spent far too much of the precious energy of life reacting to fears of other people. And so I would say secondly to you that you should learn another fear. And here's the centerpiece of our text, verses 4 and 5. Secondly, Jesus teaches us a correct fear of God that liberates the soul. Look what he says. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. No, fear him who after the body has been killed has power to throw body and soul into hell. Fear him. You see, we need to replace the false fears that we respond to and react to all the time with a real fear, with a a correct fear aligned with reality. Since the truth about us is going to emerge in the end and God knows it now, Jesus says, Here's his logic. He says, stop trifling with mere human beings, even though they can kill you. Now, this text doesn't say that human beings can't kill you. It says they can, and they probably will if they have the opportunity. It's very realistic. But it says, once they've killed you, that's all they can do. You say, that's all? (laughs) That's a lot. Jesus says, there's something much, much more to fear. Because it's got to do with the life that's beyond this life and what happens then. You need to fear him who, after you have been killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Here's that ugly word on the lips of Jesus himself, the doctrine of hell. Now, no details about it, no fires here, no devils with pitchforks, but the fact that beyond this life, your soul is not annihilated, it does exist, and there will be another state of existence once you're done with this present body. It's one thing or the other, and God has a power to determine whether that unending life after this life will be an awful life or an awesome life. And so Jesus said, direct, reverent, fear to God who could consign the unrepentant soul to an eternity of woe and pain. We have to go elsewhere to learn everything about the doctrine of hell. It's not here. It's just simply stated here. 
If people will not face the truth of what they are now and trust themselves to God's appointed Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who died to change that eternity, then they will be consigned to this place of woe. What to do about that? Let your fear of trivial nothings that can't really harm you be supplanted by fear of him who holds the power of eternity. Now, these fears are different, to be sure. You know, it's one thing to quake and tremble before a human being. But we're asked to bow before a respect for authority and power and reverence at knowing the wonder of who the tremendous God of the universe really is. There's a good illustration of who he is in Isaiah chapter 6, a well-known passage. When Isaiah had a vision in the temple of the Lord, you know this passage, many of you do at least, he saw this vision of the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, surrounded by heavenly beings, and his train filled the entire temple. It was a vision, but it was absolutely real when he saw it. And let me ask you, how did Isaiah respond when he, an educated prophet, a a religious man, a man who lived in the court of kings, who moved among powerful people. You know, he wasn't some yokel from the country who, who was easily awed, let's say. How did Isaiah react when he saw that tremendous vision of God in the temple? Was he casual about it? Did he say, oh, hey, that must be God. Hey, God, glad you showed up today. Nice to see you. Check out Isaiah 6 if you have any doubt how he responded. The Bible says he hit the floor and he wailed and he said, Woe is me, I'm undone, for my eyes have seen the king. Hebrews in the New Testament interprets what was going on with Isaiah when it said, We must worship God reverently and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Isaiah thought he was going to die on the spot. He was actually terrified for those moments. Now, millions of people say, where are you going with this, Pastor? It sounds like you're scaring me. You're telling me I've got to have an idea of God as a big, scary goblin or something. No, I'm not. I'm saying let your idea of God approach the greatness and grandeur of the God of the Bible as he reveals himself. The Bible, you know, if you're a person who says, well, my idea, and we hear this all the time, don't we? My idea of God is the God of love and grace and mercy and tolerance. Well, fine. All those qualities can be found in God. But let me tell you, you cannot deal properly with those qualities, the sweet qualities of God, until you have first recognized the holiness and the sovereignty and the awesomeness of the God of the Bible. You have to see that first. The King of heaven enthroned as unspeakably high above you as someone to whom you are absolutely accountable and before whom you are guilty and to whom you cannot bring the atonement price. You don't have a present 
that you can lay at his feet that's going to impress him or change his attitude toward you as a sinful creature. He doesn't need anything you can give him, but you are accountable. He's the creator. He's the one who, at one point, when Moses inquired, well, just who is this God anyway? His answer came back and he said, I am who I am. That's all you need to know. Does that at all describe the God you worship? You know, Christian martyrs in past history learned that men can indeed do terrible things to a physical body. It's no small thing, of course, that men can kill us. But only God can blot out a soul. That's what this is saying. You go around fearing someone whose ultimate ability is to kill your body, maybe even to torture you or cause you great harm. What about your soul? Do you have awe and respect for him who can literally consign your soul to eternal woe? No wonder it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right fear, reverent fear, not terror. Reverent respect for who God is is a cleansing thing. It's an awesome thing. It tends to purge and reorder every kind of lesser fear and all those other things that, you know, they might be genuine fears at the human level, but they have no ultimate consequences. They tend to fall into line with the greatest respect and awe that we bring to our God. Of John Knox, the Scottish reformer, a fiery man, bold for the Word of God, it was said at his funeral, something I wish perhaps could be said of me. I doubt that it ever will be, but I wish it could be. Here lies a man, they said, who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. That's what this is talking about. That we would respect God so highly that we would never misdirect fear or terror towards a mere human being or any human institution or influence upon us. Biblical fear of God is not groveling terror. It doesn't mean you crawl around on the ground. It does mean that you reverence God. You respect Him. But guess what? You find out because we're only talking about a part of the description of this God when we describe Him as a king and one enthroned and and one to whom you're accountable. What we find out right away is He's also our Father. And you see, this passage knows this. Jesus wonderfully develops some things here because notice the transition between verse 5 and verse 6 after he says, yes, I tell you, fear him. And in the English translation, there's an exclamation mark. Fear him. But then look what he says right away after that. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? In other words, they're not worth very much. And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. In fact, he says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, children, for he values you more than sparrows. What's the juxtaposition of five and six got to do with each other there? You see what's being said? Be in awe before this great and mighty God, and yet recognize that he is a God whose care and compassion 
and knowledge of you is so deep and so high and so thorough that he knows the hairs on your head. He knows when a little bird falls out of the tree, a worthless little bird that has no monetary value in the world. He knows those things. He's a father. By the way, I've, I've read something about this hairs on the head business. I've read that a blonde-haired person is born with 145,000 potential hairs. Isn't that encouraging? I was blonde when I was a child. A dark-haired person has 120,000. You're less privileged. And redheads have only 90,000. Now, that tells me I can keep on losing, and I'll still stay ahead of the redheads. That sounds good. But what's the point? The point is, our God, this awesome God. You know, there's actually a hymn in our hymnal. We don't sing it, and I suppose the title alone would put you off. The title is called God the All-Terrible. What in the world is that about? Well, it's saying God is so great, so mighty, so powerful that if you were exposed to his power without the shield of his love and care and mercy, you'd be destroyed by him. But we are, as we come to him in Jesus Christ, we are exposed to the shield of his love and mercy and fatherhood. You see how many dimensioned this God is? But yet he is certainly not the God, the feel-good God of so much contemporary Christianity. Where do you go to hear the emphasis on the fear of the Lord anymore, on reverence? Where do worship services even seek after reverence anymore? In so much of the contemporary church, the God of Scripture who draws forth or should draw forth our awe and reverence is a being who's all centered on me. He's whatever I say he is, and he loves me without qualification, and I don't have to change because God just thinks I'm wonderful. Well, if that's who you worship, you might as well just draw, you know, draw a big circle on a great big piece of paper and make one of those happy faces, you know? the yellow happy face sign that you see today, put that up on your wall and bow before that every day because that's the God of some churches today. The God who shows a happy face to me. Well, let me tell you, there is a God who smiles at you, but he smiles at you as you come to him through the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all of those awesome and terrible aspects of what he would have to be to you as a judge have been dealt with, and now you can look at him as your father who numbers the hairs on your head. Well, thirdly, I think Jesus leads us to this conclusion as we move into verses 8 through 12, when he says that a right fear of God compels a confident Christian witness. You see, if the truth of who and what God is and what we are is all going to be known and dealt with in the end at at Judgment Day, then why should we not, having dealt with it today, be ready to simply confess to the whole world and profess to the world who this God is and who His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, and live lives that would openly confess Christ in word and action? Confessing Christ isn't something that martyrs do as they're led to the stake to be burned. It's something that 
Christians should do every single day in their behavior and even in their words when the opportunities come. Jesus said it here, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned. I think he's saying, are you on my side or not? And if you are, and you say you are, why on earth are you ashamed to speak my name here on earth? You know, there are Christians who think being a Christian, professing Christ is all a private thing, so they never join a church. They say, well, the pastor just stresses the idea that I have to publicly profess Christ. It's a private thing. Religion is a private thing. Who I am with God is my own business, nobody else's. So they never speak of Christ. You could hook up steel hooks and chains, and you couldn't drag out of them a profession about Christ to who he was and what he did on the cross. And yet they would say, oh, Jesus is my Savior, but it's private. Well, let me show you how illogical that is, because these people expect Christ to acknowledge them before the throne of God one day as his child and recognize them and say, oh, yes, there's Charles. He's my child. And yet they don't think it's important that they ever have to acknowledge him. How one-sided is that? What Bible taught you that? Not the Bible I'm preaching from. I can tell you, he says, those who acknowledge me will do it openly. And we'll love to do it. You see, he's saying it is another form of hypocrisy if you want the benefits of Christ in salvation, but you'll never even speak about him. That's a hypocrite. Oh, I'm a Christian. I love Christ. But I just don't like to talk about it. The litmus test Jesus is saying here is those who are mine are willing to own it and willing to show it in their behavior and in their words. A secret disciple is really no disciple at all. And then he goes into this matter, which I'll have to deal with just in two minutes. But in verse 10, people are confused as the matter of the so-called unforgivable sin comes up. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What is that? Why is it here? Well, let me tell you, every time this subject of the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit comes up, in the Gospels anyway, it always comes up after somebody has ascribed to Jesus the activity of Satan. And that's what just happened in chapter 11. They had said, he's a devil. The Son of God is a devil. Now, Jesus was saying, look, there can be people who are just ignorant, and, and they don't know the truth about me, and so they reject me or say something against me because they don't know any better, and that's forgivable. But he's saying, when they know better, when the Holy Spirit has given them a basic knowledge of who I am, what I'm doing, and they speak against that, that is not forgivable. And that's what the Pharisees have been doing. That's why this comes up here, because the Pharisees were speaking against the very knowledge of God that they had by being students of the Word. They refused the divine light that God granted by His Spirit. They called His Son a devil, and so they were making a willful, conscious, intentional 
blasphemy. And Jesus says, for that, if that's really what you've come to, you're moving past the point of any recovery spiritually. Your conscience is seared, and you're entering the very abyss from which there's no return. Now, there are always people who say, wow, maybe I've done that. Maybe I don't even know that I've done that. And our answer is usually to that person, look, if you're worried as someone who professes Christ about whether you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, you almost certainly have not. You understand? Because if you're even worried about it, the Holy Spirit has given you that worry, and that's good. If you're worried about speaking the wrong thing against the Lord, the Spirit is speaking to you because you wouldn't have that conviction any other way. Those who have done this, who have blasphemed in this way, are cold, their consciences are dead, and they're acting with deliberate opposition to all the things of God. They don't go around saying, maybe I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They don't even care anymore. Now, in summary, this. Jesus is saying, don't fear people. Don't fear people. Stop and think about all the ways that you do fear people and stop doing it. Because in the final analysis, they cannot do you that much harm. They might cause your death, but that isn't the ultimately harmful thing. Acknowledge Christ as Lord in trembling reverence before a holy powerful, awesome God who can open the gates of heaven or shut the prison door of hell and live your life in awe of Him. That is a fear, you see, that drives out every other fear. 1 Peter 3.14 has a conclusive word. When Peter writes, do not fear what others fear. In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord and be prepared to answer anyone who asks the reason for the hope you have. Do you see the joy of that? Do you see how that cleanses a life, drives out the demons of all the worldly fears, and brings in an awesome, trembling reverence before the great God, who is also, by the way, our Father? Fear God exclusively. The only alternative is being afraid of almost everything else. Let's bow before him. Father, we pray that you teach us a right fear, a fear that has joy and delight at the end of it, not that we would run away from you as if you were the hobgoblin who wanted to destroy us, but that we would hold you in such honor and in such awe that our lives would be obedient and thankful And yes, even delighted in knowing you in this lifetime because we will know you perfectly in eternity. Thank you that you are doing this work and I pray that someone would begin to discover it, the perfect fear that drives out all others. Bring it alive in them, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.